This message first aired on the radio on January 21st, 2004. I find myself saying often these days that ignorance and arrogance is a bad combination. It's like nitrogen and glycerin. As Gentiles, of course, we come out of a history of ignorance. And as both Jew and Gentile, we're well aware of our own arrogance. Here in the, the first epistle of the Corinthians, we see this combination of ignorance and arrogance brought to its drastic conclusion and its obvious end in the behavior of the Corinthians and the state of the Corinthian church. Uh, I know one believer who used to refer to this epistle as First Americans, and rightly he could, because we find the circumstances of this epistle so prevalent and so common in our churches here in America, but not only here. I've traveled a little bit in the world. I've been among Christians in faraway places, and I can assure you that ignorance and arrogance are not American-only features. Neither are they especially Christian, but they're distasteful in the Christian church, and they ought not to be. After all, God's program of salvation was one that was organized specifically to eliminate boasting, and it is one organized specifically to eliminate ignorance. Well, here the Corinthians have broken into party spirit, they've broken up into factionalism, and therefore they boast one against the other. And instead of building one another up, they're blowing themselves up, or they're puffing themselves up. And we have an arrogant and ignorant group here. And as we've seen through the first four chapters, the apostle inveighs against that. He reminds them that judgment is an aspect of the house of God, that every child of God will be judged in the day when the Lord decides, in the, in the day of Christ's coming. During man's day, the judgment of men is insignificant, but in the day to come, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When we come to Second Corinthians, or Second Americans, perhaps we call it, uh, in the fifth chapter, the apostle will become all the more solemn about that event. But here we have it shown in the third chapter. And then in the fourth chapter, the apostle talks about his own apostleship and points out that he brings the word of God not in man's wisdom or in eloquence of speech, but in the power of God because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Well, he ends the fourth chapter by saying the kingdom of God is not in word, but it's in power. What will you? In other words, which do you want? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? He says, it's your choice. I'm going to come to you. Do you want me to come with a rod or do you want me to come in the spirit of meekness? It's their decision. But let me assure you that the apostle, when he says that he will come with a rod as need be, that he did not lack power nor authority in the Corinthian church. And preaching, brother, if you're listening, uh, let me say that if you cannot preach with the authority that Christ gives, don't preach. Uh, the Word of God needs to be preached with authority, it needs to be brought with authority, and it is no criticism, or at least it is no valid and hurtful criticism, if you are criticized for preaching with authority. That needs to be done. Well, here the Apostle now turns his pen to the urgent matters at hand. Of course, the party spirit underlies and, and shows all kinds of other problems that are in the church. But here are these puffed up people vainly pursuing worldly ways and worldly wisdom, boasting of themselves and of their leaders. And we have this incredible statement about the condition in their local church. 
so we start here, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication, not so much as n- is named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Now here he, he says this unspeakable sexual immorality that is in your midst, even the Gentiles don't name this kind of immorality, sexual immorality. Even the Gentiles wouldn't regard this as anything to be put up with. Now, maybe we don't have a good idea of Gentile culture, although we're beginning to get one as America descends into the abyss of a godless, Christless society, and we begin to see sexual morality coming totally undone. This is something that has been publicly undone in my generation, and in my lifetime I have seen the undoing of the public morality. Now I say the public morality because uh, immorality, the private immorality, has always been with us, but it was always kept private. In fact, it was not seemly to make it public. Uh, When I was in school, for example, I can't think, maybe there was one person in my school, in my class, who had divorced parents. I leave room for one because I don't know of any. Uh, Today, it is the case that most families have been hit with divorce at some time in their background. Today, it is the order of the day for people to live together in an unmarried state. Today, it's the order of the day for people to swap out partners or to live in uh, public adultery and sexual immorality. In the days of Corinth, all of these things were true, especially in Corinth, where we had, we might call it a sailor city, it is a coastal city, and wickedness does grow faster in port cities than it does in the inland, where there is a greater commerce of people. And so Corinth was certainly not known to be a moral city, but here inside the local church of Corinth, uh, we see a, a kind of sexual immorality which was not even named among the Gentiles, and that is that somebody was having his father's wife. Now, this didn't mean that somebody was having their own mother. That not necessarily in view here. As we understand heathen societies or Christless societies, we do understand that polygamy can mark these societies. If you've never lived uh, where there is polygamy or in a polygamous society, you're a bit surprised by the fact that within polygamy there is a morality. Within polygamy there is a morality. It's a large subject. And when we come to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, we'll touch upon it because there were questions that arose uh, due to the polygamous conditions in Corinth, where there were men that had more than one wife. And in addition to having wives, they also had concubines. Now, this woman involved here in this uh, public immorality was likely a second wife or a concubine of the father, probably a second or third wife of this man's father. Now, as a as a second wife, for example, of his father, the woman would likely be approximately his age. In polygamous societies, what happens is when a man reaches his, oh, say his 40s, his, uh, his 40s or 50s, if he's a man of some means and can afford a second wife, uh, he will often send his wife to go find a younger woman, a woman of early childbearing years, for example, that is in the prime of her childbearing life, 
and the first wife will go get him a second wife, and she'll be, as it were, an assistant wife. She'll be a wife to the man, but she will be in the household in rank below the first wife. Now, if this is, I, I just suggest that a case like this uh, could very well be the case of this unnamed young man and woman in Corinth, where the woman would be about the age of the man's son or of this fellow, and it would be his second wife. And now this one is beginning to have sexual relations with this woman who is his father's wife, which is a heinous and horrible, immoral behavior even among the Gentiles. Because we, we see here that the occasion that is taken here by the apostle is about a sin that is even beyond the scope of Gentile morality. And so very possibly here we have a young man having a carnal knowledge of a woman that is his own age and is his father's wife, but not his mother. And now he says this is going on, and of course even the Gentiles wouldn't tolerate this. Uh, this would be something that among the Gentiles, this fellow would be beaten for. And indeed, they would drag him out and beat him. If not his brothers, the neighbors, the cousins, or the woman's family would give this guy a serious beating. Certainly his father would preside over that beating. But this Corinthian church is, instead of mourning and instead of sorrowful about this horrible condition of immorality, the apostle says, verse 2, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Now here he says, you are so arrogant, you are so puffed up and arrogant and inflated about your own selves that you have not judged gross immorality in your midst. In fact, here he says it's commonly reported. Now, one thing was reported to him by the household of Chloe, another by perhaps another household. Maybe he received a letter with certain questions. But unanimously, commonly, they all reported this condition of horrible immorality that was being tolerated in the context of the local church. And publicly, this fellow was known to be in association, in approving connection with the church that was in Corinth, and these people didn't instead, as the apostle instructs him here, that they should have mourned about this, not been so arrogant, and dispatched this person out of their society as Christians at once. Well, do you know, friends, that if you're, a, if you're in a Christian church that will not, under any circumstances, dispatch someone from their midst, you are not really in a Christian church. The apostle here says, if, you're a, if you are a Christian church, then you must stand for something publicly. And why isn't it that you haven't put this person out? Now, let me tell you, the immorality that the apostle is inveighing against here is not so much the immorality of the man having his father's wife. That one's so obvious, nothing needs to be said. The immorality that he's uh, talking about here and that he's criticizing the Corinthian church for is not doing anything anything about it, that they continue to associate with this wicked person. And that's what the Bible calls him. The Bible calls this guy a wicked person. We'll see that later in the chapter. He said, how is it possible that you're so arrogant you didn't put this guy out? He said, well, how do they put him out? They shun him. They have nothing to do with him. They point out to him they're not in approving connection with him. And that is what it means to have him taken away or to kick him out. 
In fact, if they would have the proper point of view concerning this scandalous behavior, they would have nothing to do except kick him out and tell him they'll not have anything to do with him. And they would tell him that with one unanimous voice of the entire church. Now, friends, I have been in churches that refuse to judge immorality of various kinds that the Bible discusses. And we'll see five of those deadly sins, as they can be called. We'll see those five things for which we must put people out of the Christian church for. I've been in churches that refuse to do that. And, in fact, they become no more churches. A church must at least hold the truth and stand for some kind of standard of public behavior. And here we see this is a gross immorality, and he won't be put out for it. Well, we can talk also about what Christians do, churches do and don't do, because here's a man in this kind of gross immorality, and they won't put him out. But I would suppose if a young woman showed up pregnant, they might put her out. Well, at least that's what happens in our churches here today. Uh, whether the woman has continued in immorality or repented or not, and we make the sin the pregnancy and not the sexual immorality. Well, I get ahead of myself. We'll touch upon that in a bit as we go on. But here's what the apostle said that he did. He said, I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. He said, this one's easy. I'm far away, and I've already judged concerning him uh, that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me say, here he's again talking about the day of the Lord Jesus. And he's saying, you need to cooperate with heaven today. You need to put him out of your midst today so that in that day that we live for, where we want to be pleasing from him, uh, this fellow has the opportunity of rescuing his Christian life because he is, right now is dead while he lives. And so we'll turn him over to Satan. We'll put him out of the midst of the congregation. Friends, when you're in the local church, you're in the protection of God. You're in the assembly of the living God. And when you get put out for right reasons, like this fellow was put out for, finally, when you get put out for right reasons, God has cast you out already in heaven and is willing and has turned you over to Satan that you could be dealt with by him in order that you would repent and would return to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you this, I've seen Christian discipline work, I've seen things like this carried out in the proper way, and I have seen such ones restored in the spirit of meekness to happy fellowship. Well, we'll come back and we'll look more at this horrible situation and what to do about it after this brief break. Well, the question arises, what does it mean to be delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Let me say that it's not a great mysterious statement. Uh, Satan is out there as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and Satan preys upon the inclination of our old nature, that is the flesh, he preys upon it and induces us to indulge it. And so here this fellow is said by the apostle that he should be put out there. If he wants to indulge his lust so much as this, then we'll turn him over to Satan that he will see the result of being turned loose 
uh, on his lust. But let me say that this putting one out and delivering to Satan for the destruction of the flesh is not merely for the good of the one put out. Uh, So many people say, well, now we have to do what's best for this fellow and put him out and make sure he understands our love for him and so forth and so on. And let me assure you that that is not the urgency uh, that the apostle has here. The urgency that the apostle has here is the purity of the local church. That is first and foremost in his mind. And he says that in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. He said, your arrogance, your glorying in yourself, your vanity is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And in fact, it does. When public sin is tolerated uh, like this was, then as the scripture says in Ecclesiastes, the hearts of men meditate to do evil. That's the way we are. When justice is not brought to bear in any way, then the hearts of men meditated to do evil. But when justice is swift and brought to pass, and this fellow is expunged from their midst, others will therefore fear, and the fear of God and the dread of God will fall upon all, and his discipline will be beneficial to others. Now I want to say here that we're going to come to the point in 1 Corinthians 11 where the apostle says that when they partake of the Lord's Supper, that some do it in an unworthy manner. And for this cause, many among them were uh, sick, and many even die from that immoral way of coming to the Lord's Supper, or coming in an unworthy manner. Uh, But apparently that was not a universal matter. Universally, that great wonder was not worked in the church, because this fellow was alive, even though he's dead while he lives, as the scripture would say. But now he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and of course, therefore, the concern is for the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And now we have verse 7. And we have some teaching here about the Passover and then the leaven and purging out the leaven that is an analog that we can hearken back to the Old Testament because Passover began the week of Passover celebrations. The Passover sacrifice began the week of the Passover celebration, and throughout that week, it was up to every single Jew, having had the Passover sacrificed, to search diligently through everything that he had and get rid of everything that was leaven. And he searched his whole house. He'd uh, light a candle, and he'd search everywhere in the house, and he'd be very finicky about purging out the old leaven. So this is a picture here of what's to take place in the church. We are not to have public sin vainly foisted upon us and blatantly advertised and arrogated out to the community. Let me tell you that the Christian church is the temple of God, said here. It is, it is the only entity that God has given us for Christian society. It survives every culture. It is the Christian culture, and we stand in the Christian church. All of our arrangements are not our own. 
Uh, we can meet as convenient uh, as as conveniently as we want, but we come together. We must have the truth. The church of God is to be the source of truth, the pillar and support of the truth. So we must have the truth, and that means we have to have the scriptures and the teaching of them, and we have to have a standard of living that sets us apart from the rest of the world. And of course, these standards are not sinless standards, but we cannot have open, public, shameful behavior. We cannot tolerate that in the church, and we're given five areas to look at in this chapter that can define someone to be a wicked person. And those are the only five, except that there be uh, someone who is a discordant brother, who teaches contrary to the, who creates offenses, not teaches, but creates offenses, contrary to the doctrine which we have learned, and or, or who also foists schisms. So here we're going to look at these sins as we come down through the passage. But notice that the Corinthians are urged to take as their precedence the purging out of old leaven, that followed the Passover as an analog. And so he says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. And by the way, that's the fulfillment of Passover. Our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled it, so we don't keep such feasts as Passover. And then he says, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither within the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened of sincerity and truth. Now he says, let's be sincere, let's be honest, let's not have malice and wickedness. And of course, hear this wickedness, probably malice on the part of this man against his father, I would suppose malice, their evil intention toward his father, and wickedness, this is uh, just horrible evil. That's not how we gather together, and that's not how we maintain our remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not how we wait for him. But we wait for him in sincerity and truth. And let me say that truth is important, but sincerity with the truth is really the standard. It really the standard. The truth can be had really insincerely insofar as it can be picked and chosen to be obeyed or not. But with sincerity and truth together, then we have the kind of society, we'll fashion the kind of society that the Christian church is to be a society inside society. And really, Christian culture is defined not by arrangements and outward appearance and externalities, but it is defined by standing up, by maintaining a standard of behavior for our own and putting forth uh, the word of truth. And if we do those two things, we really don't have much else to do in the local church to be blessed by God. Now, he tells them further. He said, I have written to you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators couple of things here we just observed. He said he had written an epistle. Here, this is not if the epistle to the Corinthians that he's referring to is specifically to them, then we're not talking about something that is part of the canon of Scripture. Whatever it is he wrote before, we've got the essence of it right here, that he had told them not to keep company with fornicators. Now, fornicators are immoral people. It can be a, it's a broad term that includes adultery. In the context, it can specifically mean that which is sexually immoral but is not adultery. But in this case, we have not to keep company with fornicators. That includes 
an adulterer, but it's a sexually immoral person. He said, don't keep company with sexually immoral people. But I did not, it says in verse 10, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. He said, when I said, don't keep company with fornicators, I meant don't keep company with fornicators that are Christians that are Christians, who make a claim and publicly identify as a Christian. You say, well, how do we really know if they're really Christians? Well, if they say they're Christians, that's enough. You're not to keep company with someone who identifies himself as a Christian if he's a fornicator. Now, he says, not altogether fornicators of this world, verse 10, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. Now he's included four other, or, or three other sins here, covetous, extortioners, or idolaters. And he'll include drunkards here uh, in a little bit, and that's how we'll come to five. But now he includes with fornicators, covetous, extortioners, and idolaters. And he says, now I didn't say don't keep company with those of the world that are like that. You'd have to leave the world because the whole world is made up of fornicators, covetous, extortioners, and idolaters. And by the way, this is true. This is a true statement. <laughs> the world propounds some kind of family values, some kind of standard of living. But let me tell you that this standard would never fly in the world. Fornicators, covetous, extortioners, or idolaters, pretty much that covers everybody you meet that's not a Christian. The apostle says the problem is it also pertains to a few people who are Christians or so claim to be, and those who claim Christ and persist in this kind of immorality, fornication, covetous, extortioners, or idolaters, don't associate with them. Now, friends, if you're in a huge church, uh, you need to wonder and you really need to think about this standard that God has given. I don't say it's impossible for a huge church to maintain this standard. Obviously, it is possible for any church to maintain this standard, or God would not be proper to command it. He commands this standard. It is possible for every church of God to uphold this standard. But I'm going to tell you, my friends, it is not being upheld. That is why one can call this First Americans instead of First Corinthians. The churches today are filled with fornicators, covetous people, extortioners, idolaters, and drunks of various kinds. And we're commanded not to associate with them. And when you bring this to the attention, by the way, in large churches, or let me just say careless churches, you receive these complaints from the leadership of those churches. Well, we're so big, how can we possibly police this thing? Well, let me tell you, if you probably didn't become that big without trying to be. And by the way, if you enforce this standard and you would put out from among yourselves idolaters, covetous persons, and extortioners, and drunks, if you put those out uh, and railers, you will find that your church won't be quite as big as it once was. Now he writes... He, and of course, he says this standard doesn't apply to the world. It applies in the local church. But now I have written unto you. 
He says, I wrote to you before uh, not to keep company with fornicators or covetous or extortioners or idolaters, but now I'm writing unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother, now that's what it, that's the standard, called a brother, whether he is a brother or he isn't a brother, if he calls himself a brother, if others call him a brother, if he's accepted as a brother in the Lord, then you're not to keep company with one if he's a fornicator or covetous or an idolater, or a railer. And by the way, a railer is a generally bad person. It's a generally evil person. It's not just someone who has something bad to say about somebody. The term actually means it's a generally bad person. We could talk a little bit about people that get called railers, and we will in a few minutes. But let's be clear what this language is, because oftentimes people are kicked out of churches, not for immorality, but for standing for truth against men who would get a following after themselves, and uh, they're dubbed railers. I know one church, for example, that when someone was called a railer, they wouldn't even hear the accusation because that was the way, historically, that good men were run out of the church for wrong reasons. So we'll take that up in a little bit in some more detail. But if anyone that is called a brother is an ex- is a uh, fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard, drunkard or an extortioner with such a one, no, not to eat. And that actually means not even to eat. Uh, it doesn't specifically say don't eat with them, but go ahead and go to the movie with them. It doesn't say go ahead and carpool to work with them, but don't eat with them. It means not even to eat as, as public eating is the least of public association. He says don't even eat with them. Now he says, for what have I to do to judge them that are outside? And the answer is nothing. The Christian has no obligation to judge the one on the outside. But do you not judge those who are within? And the answer to that is just as much as the other one was no. The answer to this one is yes. It is the responsibility of every Christian congregation, of every Christian assembly, calling itself a church of God. It is the absolute essential obligation of that church to judge its own on the inside. And people who come into the local church need to be told that there's a standard of behavior here. Here it is. And if you get outside that standard of behavior, or if your children grow up and get outside that standard of behavior, here we are to enforce it. And we are not going to tolerate that behavior. And you'll lose your associations. It will be a painful thing. You will be shunned. You will be avoided if you cross these gross barriers. And he says, those are the on the outside, God will judge. But those who are on the inside, the believers are supposed to judge. And now he concludes with this great statement. And we're going to review some of these sins uh, in just a minute. But he concludes with this summary statement. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And that's his conclusion. They have a wicked person on their hands. He needs to be put out. We're going to come back in a minute and look at some of these other sins. I hope you stay with us. Well, as we look at the fifth chapter, we really need to couple it with the sixth chapter, and we'll take that up, and we'll take the sixth chapter up here in a while. But we need to couple it with the sixth chapter because when we look at 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, we might say that we have the two codes of enforcement that the Christian church, every Christian church, is capable and empowered by God to, to manage. 
And we might say that in 1 Corinthians 5, we have the Christian criminal code, and we might say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have the Christian civil code. Now, I realize I'm imposing terms uh, not found in the Scripture, but when we look at law, we talk about criminal and civil law, and we know that criminal law has to do with offenses against the society, and of course, in the Christian context, that means offenses that are particularly against God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have differences handled between brothers. And that's what, in the great scheme of things, we call that, we would call that tort law. And in both cases, we are not to use the standards of the world, nor the courts of the world, to enforce these things. Of course, if there is gross criminal behavior in your midst, I don't know what to tell you to do about it. We find out from Romans 13 that criminal behavior, if we judge it to be done that way, is handled by by the civil authorities. So if you have uh, someone who breaks into your home and steals your stuff and is your brother in the Lord, well, that's up to you to decide whether you call the police on him or try to handle it yourself. Of course, when it comes to civil criminal matters, it's not handled by the Scripture because Christians are living in a civil society. And we know that the laws of the civil society apply as much as they need to be in the local church without the participation of the local church. But in these matters of immorality, of course, there is no standard in civil law anymore about these. Now, in America and in much of the West, there was a day, there was a time when substantially these moral misdeeds named in 1 Corinthians 5 even had a public penalty attached to them. And this has been in my lifetime. For example, fornication and adultery, uh, when I was a young man, and I was not involved with any of the law in that, but the law actually forbade fornication, cohabitation between unmarried parties, sexual cohabitation between unmarried parties was outlawed, adultery was illegal, there were such criminally enforceable statutes as alienation of affection and uh, public indecency and some other things where we would find some of these sins here in 1 Corinthians 5 to be civilly prosecutable, but I don't advocate that, the Bible doesn't advocate that, and that's not really the point here. The point is that the church needs to stand for something or it will lay down for everything. And what we have today are so-called churches who will stand for everything. Now we look at these sins, uh, we look at how it is if a so-called brother or somebody who is called a brother is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. In each of these six cases, uh, the man or the woman is to be avoided. Now, when we look at the government of God here, and that's what we're talking about, we're talking about God's government in the local church. When we see this, we have to think about the fact that the Lord himself also spoke something of judgment. He said, if your brother offends you, go to him. If he hears you, you've won your brother. And of course, the, the assumption there is that the offense uh, that you're aware of with your brother is sustainable and that it's a true offense, not something made up. And if he hears you, you've won him. And then it says, and then if he fails to hear you, take with you two or three witnesses. This is uh, Matthew 18. 
He says, take you two or three witnesses that every word may be established. Now, that's an Old Testament principle. It's a proper legal principle that because your brother didn't hear you privately, he's probably going to argue about words. He's probably going to argue about what you said, what he said, what he didn't say, what he didn't do. And so you take with yourself one or two more witnesses so that in the mouths of two or three witnesses, every word would be established. Now, some will try to stop you from even getting that done, saying that doesn't work and whatsoever, but I assure you that it is very difficult to lie and be persuasive in the church of God. That doesn't mean that there's not miscarriage of justice. In fact, in most churches today, I would suspect uh, that there would be more miscarriage than the carriage of justice. But you know, friends, uh, we don't change our standard because of our condition. We change our condition because of God's standard. And we come to one who is able to do for us beyond what we ask or think. And we come to one who still would have us to act on the principle of grace through faith. And I want to tell you it's very gracious and it's very faithful to take these matters up in the congregation and to judge them. Now, you may say, well, fornication with this guy, it was kind of easy. They had videotape of him and his father's wife, whatever, whatever. But what about these other things? What about covetous? Well, that's number two on the list here. Covetous. If a brother is covetous, oh my. Now, I have heard of people run out of local churches for sexual immorality. I've heard it, and I've seen it done properly. But I have never heard, and I would like to hear, but I have never, I mean, I would like to hear it if it's ever happened, because I have, properly, because I have never heard of anyone being run out of the local church for covetousness, although I have known of many, many who should have been. I have known of many who should be. But here the Bible teaches us that we should run out a covetous man. You say, well, how can you even judge that? Listen here, my friend. What kind of a question is that when the apostle writes here, this is the apostle's doctrine, this is the word of God, it's God-breathed, when it writes here that we ought to judge covetousness in our midst. I'll tell you, it can be judged, and the problem is it's so widespread and it becomes so obvious we don't want to judge it. We'd rather form the sinner's union. I'll protect your sin, you protect my sin. And that's what we do. We form the sinner's union to protect one another from the standards that God has set. But covetousness is idolatry, elsewhere defined in Scripture. It's said to be idolatry. It is another form of idolatry. And in today in American churches, covetousness abounds. It abounds, friends. It abounds. And you, as a Christian, are obliged to judge that. And judge it in yourself first. Start living inside your own means. And you'll begin to see what a horrible thing covetousness actually is. You say, what's covetousness? Covetousness is wanting that which God does not want for me. That's the standard. Wanting that which God does not want for me. And God does not open it rightly to come to me, and so I seek and go about it in my own way, usually, by the way, defrauding someone else of what is theirs. 
and where you see someone defrauding someone else of what is theirs, you should begin to have your covetousness meter uh, working. And it should be edging toward, you know, the yellow and red when you see that going on. This is to be judged in the local church. Also, idolatry. Well, there are other forms of all covetousness is idolatry, but there are other forms of idolatry. This reminds me of my dear cousin, who was a great example of a courageous Christian. My cousin, we grew up together. She was older than me and very, pretty close as uh, our family was. And later in life, she began to come to a Bible study of mine. Now, I was raised a Roman Catholic. And because I was raised a Roman Catholic, I was introduced into all manner of idolatry, many idolatrous forms, whether it was the worship of Mary, prayer to saints. Roman Catholicism consists substantially of idolatry, the Roman Catholic Mass, an idolatrous thing. So we have all this idolatry around us. And my dear cousin, who's now with the Lord, who died a courageous death and lived a Christian life to her death and died very courageously, very gloriously, as a wonderful testimony uh, to her family and our extended family, was in my Bible study one night and told me that her neighbor had been evangelizing her for some time, was a man I knew about, and also I had been evangelizing her. And one night she came very plain that she had received Jesus Christ as her Savior and was a child of God, although she continued to practice her Roman Catholicism. And I told her, I said, well, I'm happy and I'm sad both. I'm happy that you have eternal life, but my dear cousin, I can't have anything to do with you because you are practicing idolatrous worship. And she rescued herself. She got her out of the Roman system and rescued herself from that idolatry and then went on to live a courageous Christian life, a wonderful example in her cancer death where she suffered much but never let the Lord's name far from her lips, an idolater an idolater who got rid of her idolatry as I uh, discarded my idolatry, and therefore we could have happy Christian fellowship together. Here is a railer. This is not just someone who speaks against somebody else, as uh, the word would imply, but the word underneath it means a generally bad person. This is a person who's into all kinds of wickedness. And uh, you can't really pin them down, but wherever evil is, they're a mischief maker or a generally mischievous person. And if you don't know what that's like, when a person has become solidly mischievous, and I say these are adults, by the way, these are not children, then you haven't raised a child. Because if you have had a few children, you know when they're generally mischievous. And they're just about going about doing evil, and you've got to do something about it, and you just begin with any of the evil, and you deal with all of the evil. Here next on the list is a drunkard. A drunkard. Now, today we want to talk about disease, and we want to talk about alcoholism, and I'm an alcoholic, and so forth and so on. The Bible uses the word here, drunkard. This is the one addicted to drink. He's addicted to mind-altering spirit, what we call them spirits, right? He's addicted to drink. This one would include, I would suggest to you, that a drunkard includes one who also has a lust for and indulges himself in the lust of other mood-altering and mind-altering substances. I believe that drunkenness here would include marijuana addiction or crack cocaine addiction or heroin addiction or any other form of ingestion to alter the mind to which one becomes addicted. 
Now, does that mean that I think the Bible teaches that a Christian cannot drink or should not drink any alcoholic beverage? The Bible says no such thing. The problem here is not the drink. The problem here is the drunk inside the Christian. It's not the drink on the outside. It's the drunk on the inside. And self-control allows us to know that there is nothing evil of itself, as the book of Romans teaches. And by the way, preaching brother, you that teach total abstinence from alcohol, do you realize that you are teaching people a wrong principle in trying to achieve a right behavior? The proper principle is that evil comes out of the heart of man. It does not come in from the outside. And if you're busy telling people, thou shalt not drink, thou shalt not smoke, or whatever it is that you're telling them that way, understand that what you may think is a good thing insofar as you bring about social pressure toward a behavior, you bring about a bad thing in that you teach a wrong principle. And there is no way to succeed as a Christian on wrong principles. The problem is not the drink in the glass, it's the drunk in the Christian, and that one also is to be avoided. Well, these are gross sins. These are not, uh, this, a drunkard is not someone who got drunk one time. A drunkard, is th- this is what characterizes the life. An idolater is not someone who has committed idolatry once. It, it characterizes the life. Here, finally, is an extortioner. Now, what does an extortioner do? An extortioner threatens others with disclosure or other harm for his own gain. He uses malevolent intent to receive from that person something of gain, even if the something is silence. And uh, extortion is practiced, has been practiced by religious societies throughout history. In fact, in many countries, the confessional uh, of Roman Catholicism became a systematic methodology of extortion. And don't you uh, for a minute think that it's not possible today to become an extortioner in the Christian church. It is, and people are regularly extorted. Now it tells us with all of these things where they're grossly obvious, where this characterizes the life, if any of these things characterize the life of someone who claims Christ as his Savior, who associates as a member of a local church, this person is to be publicly and specifically and obviously pointed out and avoided. Now you say, well, what do you do to avoid him? Well, you don't have to call them all manner of names, but you avoid them. You don't talk to them. You don't bid them Godspeed. You don't socialize with them. You stay away from them. And now this is not something that you do privately. This is not something you do all by yourself. This is the kind of jurisprudence that is supposed to be brought to effect within the local church. And no individual has the right to kick some other individual out of the local church. If you find somebody that's bothering you conscientiously like this, bring it up in your local church and see if your church will bring it to judgment. And if your church won't judge these things, find a church that does. I'm John Malone. You've been listening to BibleStudy.net. May God bless you.